0: Welcome to episode 2, part 2 of the Double Real podcast. Like the Hunger Games, Twilight, Harry Potter and Hobbit series, I've split it into multiple parts in a shameless bid for increased box office revenue. Obviously I didn't think the plan through, because the podcast is free to download, but hopefully it replicated for you that special, cinematic experience where everything is dragged out longer than necessary, with an irritating break in the middle. In the first part I covered the regular roundup of my month in film, discussed a classic film I finally got round to watching, which was Punch Drunk Love and spoke with my son James about our best experiences going to the cinema together. In part two you can look forward to the second part of my conversation with James, this time about our worst experiences at the cinema. After that it's my regular feature on A Hidden Gem, a film that I don't think enough people have seen that I want to draw your attention to. This month it's Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly. After that it's the One That Got Away feature about a film that didn't get made, which this month is Quentin Tarantino's unrealised Silver Surfer project. And finally I'll have a remake hate watch of the entirely unnecessary 2003 version of the Italian job. And now for the second part of this new feature, in which James Adamson speaks to James Adamson. We left off on a nail-biting cliffhanger. What were our worst experiences at the cinema be? We pick up the story with my son James about to unveil his list, and my youngest son also entering into the conversation to make this a real family affair. Now, we've got your brother... Uh, my my youngest child Rohan, who's just three months, sitting in on the conversation now. I don't think he's going to be making any contributions to the to the world of cinema. But uh, for for the listeners at home, there there, there might be some like baby goo noises now. But given given that the style of this podcast has never been about the best audio, and a lot of the a lot of the discussion is about fitting kids and babies and stuff into films, I think it's quite fitting that he's joined the conversation.
1: Well, I'd rather listen to him gurgle and shit his nappy than watch the films that I've got listed. So this is worth <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, here we go. So we've already touched on Batman versus Superman. Yeah. A pile of blank. It's yeah. It's nothing special. But I don't know if you remember going to see this. I'm wondering if it gave you, you know, PTSD. To suppress this uh, from your memory. But do you remember Disaster Movie?
0: Oh my God, that's a terrible <laughs> film. <laughs> mm.
1: it, so I'm pretty sure it's the worst rated film on um, IMDb with something like 1.6. Absolutely, out- film.
0: It's a spoof yeah. of films that the direct, that the makers hadn't even seen. A lot of those spoofs are based on trailers of films that they're spoofing. It's absolutely yeah
1: awesome. disaster. Disaster movie is the worst rated film on IMDb,
0: and deservedly so. It's an absolutely shocking piece of work. It's it's one of those yeah. That kind of goes here, the Joke, the joke's coming up in a minute. You're going to like this joke. Here's the joke. Here's the joke. And we've delivered the joke, and everyone's like,
1: "Oh my god!" Sure, even, sure.
0: even if you actually yeah. heard any comic timing, that would still have been shite. Yeah. Uh, if you
1: if you haven't seen it, don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if it is on TV, watch it for thirty seconds, and you'll we'll understand why it. It, it's terrible. There's nothing, there's nothing yeah. redeemable about that film. There's nothing that you can go and say, oh yeah, there's, you know, it's a bit silly. It's shit. It's not funny. I don't know how it managed, I, I don't know how it managed to get past boardroom with corporate, you know, executives saying, oh, what are we going to invest money into? And they thought, yeah, fuck it, we'll do this because it's terrible. It's awful. Yeah, I hate that film. Yeah. Um, I'll save this one till last Agreed. and the one after it because of it, they tie it together but this is good. I don't know how you'll feel about this but we went to see Monsters University together yeah I fucking hated it
0: I can't say I hated it I think it was a come down from the first film and I certainly didn't come out of it like you know enjoying myself or anything like that it was a I would certainly say it's an unnecessary secret I, I, didn't, I didn't feel strongly about it
1: I just I think Disney now has this problem with them making films that they don't need to make like Toy Story 4 didn't need to happen
0: yeah, I mean, I thought they did a good job at Toy Story. Totally no good. need to make it. I think they when you've when you've done yeah. possibly the best trilogy of all time, you don't make a part four, surely. Yeah, the ending to Toy Story three is what makes
1: it my favorite film of the franchise. Yes, um, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. That that blew me away. You know, it ends nicely with you know Andy, you know, giving his toys to um, is it Molly or Dolly? Spoiler alert: you haven't seen it. It's been out for ten years. Yeah, um, and yeah, I thought, wow, that's it. And then. They just kept they kept churning out films that they didn't need to make. I didn't like Incredibles two. I didn't like Monsters University. I just I did. It's one of those films where it's like oh, we will release it to make money to try and get that nostalgia feeling. The films that I've enjoyed the most from Pixar after say Ratatouille and uh, Toy Story three because it ended this the trilogy quite nicely. Yeah, it was it was wrapped off perfectly. Yeah, I I liked Inside Out because it was an interesting concept and it plays into every you know plays with an idea of you know emotions and little touches like in the dad's brain he's more controlled by anger and in the mum's brain she's more controlled by sadness. I like little touches like that. I thought it was a clever mm-hmm. thing to explore and it's really good. Um, I haven't seen Coco but I hear good things about it and I, um, I think I might like it. But with that they've done sequel after sequel after sequel. Well that ties into my next worst experience because I put Star Wars prequels but question mark after it because of how bad the sequels have been. Now we saw Phantom we saw Phantom Menace for its what ten year anniversary or something, I can't remember what it was, but I remember going yeah. and seeing it, yeah. and we saw Attack of the Clones, and we saw Revenge of the Sith, and when obviously I, 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 yeah, and I was like six when Attack of the Clones came out, so I was just in full Star Wars mode, you know, getting the you know the toy lightsabers and you know just fully in love with the Star Wars universe. So I wasn't watching it from a critical perspective, but as I've got older, I've watched films more not with more of a critical eye, yes. and the prequels are shit, but they're shit for different reasons to why the sequels are shit yeah so that's why I put a question mark there, because I enjoyed going to see them with you but those films are terrible
0: yeah I mean again I, think not as an experience. I don't think you have to kind of say put, put that down as a bad experience even if the film was crap but again I, I have to admit I enjoyed watching Star Wars with you I remember looking at these and going these aren't nearly as good as the originals and and I know that the films that you love from from growing up are different kids films than the Star Wars ones whereas the Star Wars films were my favourites growing up Um. but yeah I, I mean I enjoyed going to same with you, but the um, because the prequels are bad because they let
1: George be George Lucas be the director and writer, and that you just let George Lucas come up with the idea, and then you get someone else to direct it and write yeah, it. I think the um, the Jones film. Yeah, like the um Spielberg, you know, get Spielberg to do it, and he'll, he'll do a good job with the film. But what I like the prequels because what they're trying to say story wise is that this is Anakin, he's the guy that you know he turns to the dark side, and it starts off with him, you know, as this innocent kid who joins you know the the Jedi Order. and I agree with that, and then he, you know, he falls in love with Padme, and that's why he he turn, not t- like, turns turns to the dark side because he can't really be with her because she dies, etc. Yep. He's scared of the Jedi, etc. Yeah, I, I like stuff like that, and I agree that that you know he becomes Darth Vader. I like all of that. I don't disagree with that. It's just done really badly. The dialogue's terrible. It's for you know for George Lucas to write all these things about you know Padme and Anakin being in love. The dialogue's terrible. It's like he's you know he's not married, like. Does he have these conversations with his wife, Or is like I don't like that. And it's just yeah. you know, the dialogue shit. But I, I, I like what they're trying to do, you know, story-wise, canonically. Yeah. Yeah. But with the sequels, yeah, it's just to make an extra five billion dollars for Disney.
0: And and I think the the interesting thing is there's and there's no excuse for this now because they work in the media and know what works and what doesn't. There are TV shows on on television or on Netflix or whatever, and there are film series over on Marvel where someone has a plan. Right. Someone says this is going to happen. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. And they make each film or each episode as good as they can make it. But someone is in control of making the story like go in the right direction. And they didn't do that with the latest three. They did the first one where they went, okay, we're just going to kind of do a New Hope again. I enjoyed it, but it's clearly just New Hope again. And then the second mm-hmm. one, they went, well, we're going to throw out this thing that happened. We're going to take the storyline and just finish it in five seconds. You just think, hold on, hold on. Hold on you've got an arc right and you've just broken your art and, the, and and then in the third film they were kind of reacting to the fact that a lot of people didn't like the middle one and it's like to stand and watch all of the other films that have been made and all the other shows that have been made in the world right now and not think we need a showrunner we need someone to actually have a plan for this story over three films is unforgivable it's just it's just a, a schoolboy error by, by some people who should know yeah
1: but they don't fucking care like the first one made like 2.5 billion dollars so I imagine the, the sequel Made close to about five billion. Yeah. They don't care. They're just yeah. lying in their pockets yeah. with the capital. Yeah, I, that's why I put a question mark next to prequels because they're shit. But they're not shit as the sequels, and I enjoyed going to see them. But they are terrible films. Yeah.
0: I think in that sense, they don't count as a bad experience because you enjoyed enjoyed seeing them. At the yeah. So another one you mentioned, Steven Spielberg
1: and George Lucas, is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.
0: oh, God. oh I thought I'd block that out from my memory.
1: Yeah. Well, it's that bad that we had a bereavement in the family. Like shortly before we went to see that film, and that was still worse. That film was worse.
0: (laughs) The I knew there was something wrong when they had Ray Winstone doing whatever accent he was trying to do. And then Indiana Jones (laughs) Indiana Jones survives being at the center of a nuclear explosion by hiding in a fridge. And you just think, oh no. And the, the thing, the thing is right. If 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 George Lucas has an idea for a film, you know he's prone to clunky dialogue and poorly poorly realised storylines. But when Spielberg is the one who kind of turns it into magic, like Indiana Jones was originally called Indiana Smith. That was George Lucas's idea, and George Lucas explained the whole thing. It was going to be, He's going to be archaeologist have a bull whip. It's going to be like those old kind of adventure series you were a kid, and he's going to be called Indiana Smith. And Spielberg said, "That's a great idea, but I think he should be with Indiana Jones." And that's where Spielberg is so good. But if Spielberg's off form, and Lucas is 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 kind of like George Lucas, you've got no chance. And they just and then at the end, you go again. Spoiler alert! Oh, it's aliens! Oh, for fuck's sake, it's aliens! It's oh, yeah. George
1: Lucas, he's he did that with Luke Skywalker as well. He it was not meant to be originally Luke Skywalker. It was meant to be um, Star- Luke Starkiller. Yeah, something Starkiller. Like that. Do you know why? Do you know why he changed it? Why? Because it was too aggressive and it reminded him of Charles Manson. (laughs) Uh, How's this guy a multi, multi billionaire? Mm. Could you imagine Mm. a Star Wars franchise with Charles Manson as the main antagonist?
0: (laughs) The reason (laughs) he realized how how, what the merchandise was worth and no one else did. No, yeah, like in the Rise
1: of Skywalker when it's just um, those they're doing that bit was like, oh, they fly now. They fly. They've only included those store troopers with the jetpack so they can sell the fucking toy to an eight year old. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's... yeah King
1: Indiana Jones, and the Crystal Skull. It was just, it was, it was all right. I, Shia LaBeouf, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Shia LaBeouf gets a lot of grief for that film. I didn't mind him too much.
0: I reckon if, if the rest of the film had gone well, the idea of the mantle of Indiana Jones being passed on to him would not have been the worst idea. It's just everything around it was just, just broken. It was, you know what, it was all right. It was a bit clunky and it wasn't as good as Raiders or Last Crusade
1: or Temple of Doom, in that order. But
0: Soviets don't make as good villains as Nazis. <sighs>
1: Yeah, and but I didn't mind that, like having the Soviets, you know. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind the Soviets being the villains. It was just until they got to that Aztec or Mayan shrine hmm. temple, whatever it was, and then the aliens just fucking showed up, and John
0: Hurt's carrying a skull that can control your mind. I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. What? Well, no, what? Uh, it's just at no these films take like years to make. At no point in script conference did anyone go, I don't think the ending works. No one, no one went, this isn't going to work. I, I, can't, I kind of knew what I was getting into before I saw the film because one of my friends, um, Shouty Dave, had seen it first and I, I was going to see it and I said, look, what did you think? And his response was just like one sentence, Indiana Jones and the Phantom Menace. And I went, oh, dear. Nice and succinct from Shouty Dave as always.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, granddad and I went to see Last Crusade together. And it was like we'd seen the, you know, I'd only seen the first Indiana Jones films on like TV or home video and get to see one of the cinema was great fun. And getting to see one with you would have been really cool. And that's it's disappointing when you go and see it and it's just not very good. I know for the for the one that you we've been waiting for, shall yeah. we say? So this so, is unanimously the worst experience we've had going to the cinema together. And I think the reason we've saved it to last is there's a whole story around it.
1: Bearing in mind, we had a bereavement for, before Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, and that's still not our worst experience at cinema together. Absolutely. Just bearing that in mind. So it was 1999, 2000-ish, when this film was about to come out? It was mid-2000. Mid-2000. And it was the film Fantasia 2000. Now, obviously, I was like three or three and a half, four at this time. Three and a half. If it's mid two thousand, yeah, it was, so it
0: was, it was like July or August, something like that, and so you were not yet full.
1: So I was excited to see this film because it is Mickey Mouse and it's Mickey Mouse dressed as a wizard doing some you know random shit. So I was excited to see this film. So what cinema was it?
0: It was. So, it's one of the films around the Tottenham Court Road area. It might have been called the Odeon Tottenham Court Road, or it might be called the Odeon. Something that was just off the Odeon road, but it's basically there around the Tottenham Court Road or Oxford Street area. It was definitely an Odeon. So we went. We went to see this film, and what was the reason the first time? So what what happened was, given that this is the year two thousand, I mean, the internet exists and computers exist, but it's not as prevalent as it is today. You don't certainly don't have a smartphone in your hand to book things. So I booked that for Saturday or Sunday that week, and I booked it midweek um, over the phone. So we were all getting the tube in from Walthamstow, where we lived, down into central London, and we got there to the Odeon to watch Fantasia two thousand and. They said we're really sorry. The cinema's flooded. That screen, well, the whole thing, that screen is flooded, so you can't see the film. And we, said, oh, we, and we said okay. Well, we'll let you into another film. Um, obviously, it had to be a suitable rating for you. So the only other film that was on around about the same time, which was rated for kids, was A Monkey's Tale. Now we'd not, you'd not be going to see it. We'd gone to see something else, but it's on. It's a kids' film. It's an animated film about a monkey. Unless us watch And and we went in to see it.
1: Uh, yeah, it's the worst piece of cinema I've ever made. It's it's one of those shitty French animated things that they've just dubbed over in English. So it's that horrible hand drawn crap. It's it's fucking shit. Now, bearing in mind, I'm three and a half at this time. and My like, you know, intake of films is you'll watch anything at three and a half. Like I remember you were watching South Park, and I just came in the room and started watching it because there's cartoons on the screen, and Mum gave me a row for it. I would watch anything, and I fucking hated this film. This film was terrible. And oh, it was.
0: And bear in mind, right? This yeah. is around about the time that films like Toy Story, Mulan, Iron Giant, and even Titan AE were coming out. And Titan AE is not a great film, but it looks amazing. The standard animation, it's fantastic. So there was no excuse. It wasn't like the ability to make better animation didn't exist. It just, and it looked like it had been worn by someone who can't even.
1: Th- I've, not, I've not seen it in 21 years.
0: And, and I still, you- I. <sighs> So sure it had makes visible. Quite a good English language cast. The people who dubbed over the voices. It had Michael Gambon, John Hurt, uh, Rick Mayle playing like the cheeky sidekick, Evil Monkey. The the, the thing that the, one of the things that was bad about it, is apart from it being like badly drawn and not very well done, they hadn't put as much like effort into making it a good, compelling, interesting film. And standards are just higher for like a, a good kids animation at the time. And they have these really bad songs, like, to be king, to be king. And it's like, oh, God, these people can't even sing. And they're just going to you know stop and listen to them sing a song. The pace of the film was really bad. Do you remember that? Do you, I don't know how much of it you remember. Do you remember like, one of the characters uh, falls into the ice and drowns? And another person is slowly poisoned?
1: Oh, yeah, they're trying to poison the princess monkey.
0: And you <sighs> spend a lot of time watching, watching someone being slowly poisoned. And it's like... In other good kids' animation, you see people die, you see people ill, you see bad things happen, but they manage to show it in such a way where, you know, you someone, someone's upset about it and, and a combination of music and showing it that, that it does enable kids to watch maybe slightly darker things, but you don't kind of have to just sit and watch someone slowly dying on screen. It was really, really bad and inappropriate. So that, that that's the thing, though. To, to, to make matters worse, here's the thing. I remember you I remember coming out afterwards and every other film we were taking to see in the cinema you were quite pleased about and excited about afterwards. And on the way home, we'd chat about it a bit. And God, oh, do you remember that bit? You didn't say a word about this film on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even <laughs> able to pretend to have liked any part of it, now just I think to, I just, would make this an even worse experience, so what happened was again, so I'm going through, again used to, buy, used to buy Time Out weekly to get the cinema listings you couldn't just look it up on the internet, so I'm looking at cinema listings, there you go, there's Fantasia being shown at a good time in the middle of the day Saturday, Sunday, I booked it over the phone, same thing, Fantasia 2000 it, it was the same cinema, but it's like the end of the week, oh well, they must have fixed it, they're, sh- they're showing this film again, it's, it's all good, and we'll we'll go and watch Fantasia 2000 this time. So the next Saturday or Sunday, the following weekend, we jumped on the tube, went down and you're like, so we're going to go and see Fantasia this time. We're going to go and see this, uh, this film this time. We get to the cinema, we go in, And they said, we're really sorry, that screen is flooded. You can't see Fantasia 2000. And I don't know whether it flooded again, or they just never updated the listings. But for whatever reason, we booked again, and we were unable to see the film again because the screen was flooded. And so I looked at him and said, "Okay, well, since we've already paid for tickets, is there something else on that he can watch? And we looked at the listings, and the only thing available to watch again was the monkey's Fucking monkey's tail! And I, I kind of said, at least it's, at least you will not completely wasted your trip. And you went, okay, let's watch it again. So we ended up watching it. Neither of us wanted to. <laughs> it was just as bad, if not worse, the second time. Now, a couple yeah. of fun facts for you about A Monkey's Tale, and I, I, I wasn't sure if you were aware of. Fun fact. First of all, first of all in, in the year 2000, this film won an award for Best Animated Feature Film. Fuck off. At the... Um, at the Hungarian Animation Awards. <laughs> and the other interesting thing about this film, which is probably a good thing to leave it on, is the music for this film, and I remember the music for this film being absolutely terrible, but the music for this film was by Alexander Desplat. He's, He's excellent. Two-time Academy Award winner, Alexander Desplat, who's won two Oscars for a best original score, Grand Budapest Hotel and Shape of Water. He did the music for that film, I assume including the songs. Looked this it's up in, in, in preparation for for us talking about it, and it has blown my mind that he's wanted oh. music for that.
1: That's a real blemish on his career. I'm on at IMDb now. It has 371 ratings. <laughs> bearing in mind, like, you know, top films like The Dark Knight and all that have like 1.5 million ratings. Yeah, yeah. It has 5.7 out of 10, which is 5.7 points too high. I mean, it's it's very it's very close to being disaster movie worthy. Um, yeah, I hate this film. The reason I didn't say anything on the way back is that I think I was resisting the urge to murder after seeing that film. I think I wanted to just go and punch some monkeys after that That film. I hated I cannot describe how much I hate that film. And the fact that the cinema flooded twice and they didn't think, oh, you know what? we'll take monkey's tail off because nobody fucking wants to see that and we'll put Fantasia, the film that everyone wants to see, in that screen instead of monkey's tail, infuriates me to this day. To Why didn't they theory. just swap yeah. the screens? It, Fantasia 2000 has a 7.2 rating and 33,000, nearly 34,000 votes on IMDb. So clearly more people wanted to see it and they endu- They made us endure that film twice. <laughs> and as a result, that. I also hate Fantasia 2000, and that's one of the worst films I've had to see at the cinema. Because I, got, I went to see it after enduring Monkey's Tail twice. I was dead excited to see this film, but I saw it, and I was kind of like, eh. "It
0: wasn't, it wasn't worth it, was it? It wasn't worth all that effort nope. to go and see it. It wasn't worth going through nope. what we went through."
1: Yeah, that was is... twice. I'm still baffled that we went to see it a second time. I, I... Oh, Jesus, I oh, know it's that film makes me really upset. <laughs>
0: Which makes me really upset it has brought back some painful <laughs> memories uh, going back over the- it really <laughs> <has>. <laughs> but, yeah, but- while while i think some of the films that we've talked about uh, it would be hard you know we would recommend you see them if you haven't i don't think we're re- recommending people go and go and seek out a monkey's tail to watch it but
1: i, d- I don't think it's ever going to be on the television again <laughs> No one wants to see that film. It's, it's it's a bit like, it's not like Hamlet, but it's like everyone's trying to poison someone, and someone's trying to drown a monkey. It, it, literally, just watch Harambe getting shot for 30 seconds and save yourself watching oh, that no. film. Terrible, it's...
0: terrible, terrible, terrible film.
1: But yeah, that is the end
0: of my uh, best and worst list. I don't have anything to add. Did you have any other films? None of them is as vividly in my mind as that. So I, th- I think we've covered that topic, haven't we?
1: I think that's it, yeah.
0: So that's where we got to on our worst cinema experiences. I hope to bring you another edition of James Adamson in conversation with James Adamson very soon. And now for the feature I call Hidden Gem, in which I call your attention to a lesser known, less appreciated film that deserves to be seen by a wider audience. This month I'm going to discuss a film which may be a harder sell than the film I discussed in the first episode. This may not be for everyone. Some will love it, others might be baffled by it but I assure you that you've never seen anything quite like it. The film in question is A Scanner Darkly. This came out in 2006 and was written and directed by Richard Linklater, based on a novel by Philip K. Dick. It's set in the near future when the USA has lost the war on drugs, and over 20% of the population is addicted to pills known as Substance D. The main character is a cop who's been sent undercover to gather evidence and intelligence on people believed to be supplying the drug in California. In doing so, he's become addicted to the drug himself and is losing his grip on reality. Of course, because it's a Philip K. Dick story, it's a lot more complicated and weird than just that. You may or may not be familiar with Philip K. Dick, although you will undoubtedly have seen several screen versions of his science fiction novels and short stories. Apart from A Scanner Darkly, he provided the original source material for well-known films like Blade Runner, Total Recall, Minority Report and the Matt Damon film The Adjustment Bureau. He also wrote The Man in the High Castle, on which the Amazon TV series is quite loosely based. He was one of the leading lights of science fiction writing from the 1950s until his death in 1982, specialising in blurring the lines between perception and reality. Richard Linklater is a director whose films tend to be quite independent in style. His biggest mainstream hit was School of Rock, which tapped into his fondness for films about slackers and underdogs. He's also famous for the trilogy of films Before Sunrise, Before Sunset and Before Midnight, and for Boyhood, for which he was Oscar-nominated for Best Director. Boyhood shows he has some unconventional approaches to his films. For that one, he filmed it part-time over 12 years to show the passage of time instead of using different actors for different time periods. And this film shows him at his most unconventional. A Scanner Darker tells the story of the war on drugs from the point of view of the people whose brains have been fried by the drugs. The opening scene is of a man so affected by his use of substance D that he is hallucinating lots of bugs crawling over his skin. It's a very faithful adaptation of the novel, which Philip K. Dick claimed was based entirely on things he'd seen and experienced. This is almost certainly true, because the thing he is known for as much as for his writing is his prodigious drug abuse. He was on amphetamines for most of his writing career, which caused him health and psychological problems, and shortened his life. Some of that drug-taking was recreational, but some was to help him write novels faster, as science fiction publishers didn't pay that well, and he was always broke. The stress of writing 40 novels and over 100 short stories in 18 years combined with worsening drug addiction to drive him to a complete breakdown in the early 70s. After getting clean, A Scanner Darkly was the first book he wrote to try and make sense of his experiences and how he saw the effects of drugs on society. Richard Linklater had originally tried to adapt another novel by Philip K. Dick, I know that's a long-winded way of saying it, but it seems a bit awkward to say he was working on another Dick novel. That was Ubik, which is a great book, but probably unfilmable. It never got off the ground, and he turned his attention instead to a scanner darkly. This was fortunate, because as well as being the author's best novel, it's very well suited to Linklater's style. The result is a strange but fascinating film. At times it resembles one of Linklater's slacker comedies, but underneath there is a dark undertone. The cast includes Robert Downey Jr. and Woody Harrelson as two drugged up stoners and Winona Ryder as their friend whose drug use has left her constantly on the verge of a panic attack. Their hapless paranoia is funny at times, as is the satirical depiction of the police so paranoid themselves that they even hide their identities from each other and the resources the police devote to watching a house full of stoned idiots as if they're a major drug cartel. But the story gets darker and darker as the drugs start to take casualties. At the centre of the story is Keanu Reeves's Bob Arcter, the undercover cop, providing a dark undertow to the story as he struggles to stay alive and sane. He's on edge at the police station because the authorities, who don't know his identity, believe that his undercover persona is the head of the drug operation and order him to put himself under surveillance. He's on edge while undercover with drug users because they suspect everyone of being an undercover cop. As the story progresses, the difference between reality and illusion or hallucinations becomes ever harder to see. The performances are all excellent, especially Robert Downey Jr., who was very motivated to make this film after his own personal drug problems. Richard Linklater's brilliance is in making the story really easy to follow, even with all its twists, turns and mind-bending reality shifts. What makes this film really different, though, is how it was filmed. It was made with a technique called rotoscoping. They filmed all the scenes with real actors, then animated over it. Not just to add visual effects like the so-called scramble suits the cops wear to hide their identities and the drug hallucinations of the addicts, but everything. The actors, sets, backgrounds, the city, it all comes out animated. As a result, the film looks like a graphic novel come to life. Rotoscoping is actually a very old technique. It was invented by a bloke called Max Fleischer over 100 years ago. It was originally used to make animated films, so the technique was used for some of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and other Disney films of that era... It was used to create the glowing lightsaber effects in the original Star Wars trilogy. One of the more striking examples of rotoscope animation was the 1978 version of Lord of the Rings, which filmed live-action battle scenes then animated over them. It's also used a lot in Sin City to give that graphic novel feel that it has. But A Scanner Darkly is the only film I know of that films an entire live-action film then animates fully over everything and everyone. That's an animated Keanu Reeves. Insert your own joke here, although he's very good in the film and continues his excellent rate of doing a good job in good films despite being kind of limited as an actor. Woody Harrelson and Robert Downey are animated, the whole film, cars, backgrounds, etc, etc. I guess you could ask why they would animate this film. It's an urban police drama aimed 100% at adults. It may well have been partly to do with budgetary constraints. They didn't get a lot of money to make the film because they weren't doing a big action blockbuster and it was easier to create the effects and atmosphere with this technique. Richard Linklater had used it before for a film called Waking Life, and he took it up a notch here to deliver the constantly shifting reality that the story requires. It's a really great film, and really relevant to the present day, despite being based on a novel written over 40 years ago and being set in the future. As well as being about the writer's personal challenges with drugs and paranoia and mental illness, it's very insightful on issues like the war on drugs, surveillance, society, and the opioid crisis. The title of the film, an original book, is inspired by a Bible verse, and now we see but through a glass darkly. The idea that people can only see through a glass darkly is to have an obscure or imperfect vision of reality. The glass has been replaced by a scanner because now people are looking at cameras and using technology for their vision of reality. But the idea is that what we are looking through could be a window or it could be a mirror, and we might not find out which right away. A scanner darkly is a really unique film not just for its look and style but because you don't get that many adaptations of philip k Dick's stories that are properly faithful to the original most films based on his work just strip his ideas out so they can make a different type of story like total recall or minority reporter's blockbuster thrillers this film sticks to the original and is justified because philip k dick was on top form when he wrote this novel and the story he was telling needed to be told sadly Despite its brilliance, this film didn't do very well at the box office and hasn't been very widely seen. Hence, it's featuring here in Hidden Gems. And it's a shame it didn't. It genuinely deserves mention on the best films of that year and to have been more influential. In the parallel universe I like to imagine, it would have found an audience and its success would have led to more ambitious and different stories. Yes, we had Pan's Labyrinth and Children of Men that year, but we had many more safe and turgid blockbusters and that trend has only continued since. All it would have taken to make this a great hit would be for a portion of the undeserved box office revenue shoveled in the direction of Pirates of the Caribbean 3, X-Men 3, Da Vinci Code and Superman Returns to be diverted to this much better film and a better experience for the audience. Absent that different outcome in our reality, I urge you to try and put things right now by watching this film, telling others about it and talking about it. Even if you don't love it as much as I do, the world needs more films to be seen which do something different and tell stories in new and inventive ways. Now for probably the nerdiest feature in this nerdy podcast magazine, the one that got away, or the film that never got made. This looks at an unrealised project that a director wanted to make but ended up not happening. The history of film is full of these tales, which range from ideas that never got off the ground at all, long time passion projects that failed to materialise, to projects that got all the way to filming and either fell apart or the version we saw is not what was originally intended. Last month we looked at John Carpenter's failed attempt to adapt Stephen King's Firestarter for the screen. This had all sorts of artifacts to refer to, such as the scripts that were written for the film and interviews of the people involved. It even had an actual version of the film completed by someone else as well as a different Stephen King adaptation Carpenter made after this one fell through. All of that gives you some reference points to imagine the film that might have been. This month's feature was a lot more elusive than that, but I think it's an intriguing enough idea to be worth pursuing. The film that never got made in this case is Quentin Tarantino's version of Marvel's Silver Surfer. Now, Quentin Tarantino seems to suggest a new film he might make in every interview he gives, and there are dozens of unrealized Tarantino projects on various online list articles. Most of them are no more than that, something he said in an interview and never mentioned again. But this is a lot more substantial than that. In a nutshell, Quentin Tarantino reportedly wrote a complete script for a Silver Surfer film and submitted it to the producers that owned the rights to the character. This was in the 1990s when that film company was trying to get some Marvel-based films off the ground. At the time, they were working on a Fantastic Four film and the Fantastic Four characters and their film rights were tied to Silver Surfer. Their plan didn't come off, more on that later. Tarantino went on to make other films, the ones he's famous for, and achieved great success with his particular retro style of filmmaking. And obviously Marvel's characters have gone on to completely dominate the blockbuster end of the market in the 21st century. So big Marvel blockbusters and Tarantino films are pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum. So to get into how they're linked, you have to dig into his and Marvel's history a little bit. Marvel started adapting their characters for the screen in the 1960s, not long after their comics hit it big with their classic characters in the form of animated TV shows mainly. In the 1970s, some Marvel live-action TV shows were attempted, including the Hulk, Spider-Man, and TV movie pilots of Doctor Strange and Captain America. Hulk was the most successful, finding a way to work with limited special effects capabilities, and essentially treating Dr. Banner as a superhero version of Richard Kimball in the TV series The Fugitive. The rest of them look just shonky nowadays, due to the limits of budget and special effects of the time. Marvel live-action adaptations didn't really take off until 2000 and the emergence of some big effects-heavy blockbusters. To begin with, this followed the traditional filmmaking pattern in which a studio would buy the rights to a Marvel character, make a film, and if it did well, try a sequel. Then since 2008 with Iron Man, Marvel has been doing something different. They've been building what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU, where all the film stories are written and made according to a big plan and merge into joint adventures like The Avengers. Gradually, all the film rights that sat with other studios now sit with Marvel, partly because Disney acquired Marvel Studios and other people like Fox that held the rights. Whether or not the existence of this behemoth of cinema and media is a healthy thing in general is a debate for another day. What it would mean for comic book characters like Silver Surfer, though, is that they are almost guaranteed to be made into a film sooner or later. Silver Surfer has only featured in animated series most of the time. He's a sort of liquid, human-shaped being flying around on a surfboard through space and heavily depended on special effects on a par with the liquid metal Terminator in T2. As I mentioned at the top of the feature, there was an attempt to do a live action Silver Surfer film in the 90s, the plan being for them to do a Fantastic Four film first and in a subsequent installment, introduce the Silver Surfer. The company that held the rights was from Germany and called Constantin Film. Now, in case you're not familiar with this side of things, owning the rights to a film character or a story character to make into a film is referred to as an option or optioning. It means you have paid for a period of time, usually a number of years, where you have the exclusive right to make a film version of a story. If you don't make a film in that time period, the option lapses and reverts back to the original author who can sell the rights to someone else. In the 90s, they were trying to do the initial Fantastic Four film first, but couldn't get a big enough budget signed off or work out how to pull off the special effects required. The story goes that Tarantino, who was just making a bit of a name for himself and I think had released Reservoir Dogs but nothing else, was a big Silver Surfer fan. He submitted his script for a standalone Silver Surfer film to Constantin around this time. Unfortunately, the Fantastic Four adaptation was a complete fiasco and any follow-ups or films about Silver Surfer were also abandoned for the time being. Apparently, the option on Fantastic Four and Silver Surfer was about to lapse because they'd spent so long trying and failing to get a film made. But how the rights options work is that if you do make a film, the option automatically extends. So what happened was they made an El Cheapo version of the Fantastic Four with no-name actors and terrible special effects, like Reed Richards' amazing stretchy powers represented by him wearing a set of fake plasticine arms. The total budget of the film was a million dollars, which is pitifully low even for 1994, where a decent amount of CGI would set you back a minimum of 20 million dollars. Now there's two versions of the story as to why they went to make such a cheap, inadequate film either it was never intended to be released it was only intended so the film company could keep the option or marvel execs saw the finished film and were so concerned at the damage it would do to their reputation that they bought up the film and buried it either way the fantastic four movie never saw the light of day although it can be viewed online so no fantastic four film in the 1990s and therefore no silver surfer film either fast forward to a decade later and the bigger studios and CGI wizards have made big superhero films possible. There's no MCU in control of everything at this time yet, and interestingly, Tarantino was showing an interest in getting involved in a big franchise, with talk of him rebooting Casino Royale or Star Trek. But nothing came of his apparent lifelong passion to bring Silver Surfer to the screen at the time. The original plan to do Fantastic Four and bring Silver Surfer in was dusted off by Constantine with other people in 2005 and the 2007 follow-up, which rained at children and critically panned for being cartoonish and weak. That pretty much put an end to the Fantastic Four franchise, although they tried and failed again to reboot it a decade later. But the fans would still love to see a Silver Surfer film. So, looking at what kind of Tarantino film of Silver Surfer we might have seen, let's put it into context. He wasn't big enough and the resources weren't there to do a Silver Surfer film in the 1990s. That was a washout. But in the mid-2000s the opportunity was there, and Tarantino was a very big name by then. What if in the mid-2000s he stopped wasting his time on Death Proof as part of the Grindhouse project, and had a crack at Silver Surfer instead? There isn't an awful lot to go on initially. Last time I started out with the script, but that's been an elusive beast this time. Quentin Tarantino's script for Silver Surfer seems to exist only in snippets of articles and occasional comments on web forums. There's a long article about the various attempts to get Silver Surfer made during the 90s which refers in passing to Tarantino submitting a script unsuccessfully to Constantine but it doesn't say any more than that. There's a Reddit thread on the internet that discusses it along the lines of a friend of mine knows someone who's seen the Tarantino Silver Surfer script and apparently it's amazing. Another online discussion suggests that Tarantino wrote the whole script longhand i.e. pen and paper and the script ran 500 pages long. It seems to be mentioned in enough places by enough people, with no denials from anyone involved, to believe that Quentin Tarantino did write it. He presumably has a copy in a drawer somewhere. Maybe the studio kept a copy as well. Either way, it gets referred to as the holy grail of unmade scripts, which could mean it's the finest thing ever written, or it could mean that you could spend the rest of your life searching for it and not get anywhere. I wasn't able to find it or any more detail about it. But let's assume that in the early 1990s, Tarantino did write that script and it was turned down by the studio. No doubt they were focused on a more kid-friendly version of the story, which Tarantino would absolutely not have been offering. And he wasn't a big enough name to change their minds at the time. Now, the film company, as we mentioned, failed miserably to do a film in that decade for all the reasons we discussed. Ten years later, when superhero films were more possible, they could have thought, hey, remember that lad Tarantino wanted to do a Silver Surfer film? He's kind of a big deal these days, maybe we should try that. Presuming Marvel didn't object to an R-rated Silver Surfer, maybe that could have been made. It's still a stretch, because no one was spending blockbuster money on R-rated 15 or 18 rated superhero films at that time. Watchmen was attempted at the end of that decade in 2009 and wasn't altogether successful, and isn't Marvel anyway. There were a few things like the Blade and Punisher from the Marvel stable, but on much lower budgets. Since 2015, though, we've had the Deadpool films and we've had Logan based on Wolverine, but still not on quite the kind of budget you would need for a CGI central character who spends a lot of time flying around in space. So, to be quite honest, it's a bit tenuous that the film could have got greenlit by the studio in the mid-2000s. How much support, though, is there for the idea of Tarantino wanting to make this film? Is it really a passion project for him, a labour of love? Or would he look back now on that script as a silly idea and believe he's moved on to other things and forget all about it? Well, there seems to be enough evidence that Quentin Tarantino is a Silver Surfer fan. A character in one of his favourite films, the 1983 remake of Breathless, talks about Silver Surfer with a kind of manic fandom which is now familiar in many films, especially Tarantino's. There's a Silver Surfer poster on the wall in Mr Orange's apartment in Reservoir Dogs. And Tarantino famously did some uncredited work on the script for... Tony Scott's Crimson Tide. That features dialogue about Silver Surfer, which um, people attribute to Tarantino. He's also a vocal fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. So that's how much we do know. In terms of Silver Surfer himself, is he someone Tarantino would be interested in? Well, he's an offbeat sort of superhero, a kind of mythic character philosophizing while he flies through space. He started out as a regular person on a distant planet which was threatened by the godlike destroyer of worlds, Galactus. In the story he bargained with Galactus to save his planet and was turned into the surfer who gained awesome power in return for flying through space as a herald, it's called, finding the next world for Galactus to consume in a fiery hail of death. On encountering planet Earth he changed his mind about serving Galactus, because humans are so great and inspiring, and fought back. Henceforth, Silver Surfer is a hero fighting intergalactic threats, including Galactus, mm. but always haunted by guilt for all the worlds he helped destroy before he changed sides. So, you'd certainly expect Tarantino to be more interested in the Silver Surfer than someone like Captain America. On the other hand, he doesn't quite come across like the kind of violent, edgy character like the Punisher or Wolverine. Are there parallels with Silver Surfer with any of his other characters, the Bride, Django? Maybe Jules in Pulp Fiction at the end after he says he's going to walk the earth. That walk the earth quote is perhaps a clue because it refers to the main character in the TV show Kung Fu, which has a kind of Zen central character wandering from place to place. That might perhaps be Tarantino's way in. He was a fan of that show and worked with its star David Carradine on Kill Bill. We also know that Tarantino had a meeting with executives in the 1990s about another Marvel character, Luke Cage. He even had Lawrence Fishburne lined up to play the title character. In a few different interviews, he said that they were trying to do it, but they couldn't agree on how it should be written, and Tarantino moved on. The character eventually ended up as a Netflix series a couple of years ago. In Tarantino's pitch, he wanted the film to be word-for-word word faithful to the very first storylines of Luke Cage from the 70s, with their black exploitation feel. He left it at that saying if he was going to do something in that genre, maybe he would need to write his own superhero from scratch so that he wasn't, in his words boxed in by the limits of someone else's creation. Does that kill the idea of Silver Surfer Offering, where he'd have to dip into the Marvel canon for stories instead of his own ideas? Maybe not. Remember that a decade later, Tarantino lobbied quite hard to do a Bond film, and there were discussions for him to make a new Star Trek film, which were ongoing, even while Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was in development quite recently. There were public statements and even indications that he'd been working with the team developing a new film. He's since left that project, But after claiming back in the 1990s he would only write his own stories, he's gone back to at least two major franchises to discuss working on something. So I think there's enough to say that this script really exists, and that Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of this character. And when he's a big fan of something, it is always a possibility that he'll persevere and make a film about it. But does that mean it would actually work? I have some mixed feelings about Tarantino's career, despite his undoubted talent, and I could see ways... A Silver Surfer film could be derailed by some of his bad habits as a writer and director. It started with Pulp Fiction, where he insisted on inserting himself into the cast for one of the storylines. Not only is he not as good an actor as anyone else on screen in those scenes, why is a white bloke dropping N-bombs in front of Samuel L. Jackson and no one even mentions it? Is the character a racist but they tolerate that because they have to? Is he one of those white guys who acts like he's black even though they think that's stupid? It isn't explained, there's no context. And it strikes a huge false note because it doesn't make sense in the story. It would have been great, of course, with someone like Chris Rock doing that dialogue, but Tarantino insisted on doing it himself. It's a small thing, but it is an example of Tarantino's self-indulgence getting in the way of the film sometimes, which got worse during other films later in his career. Not in Jackie Brown, though, where he delivered the best film for 20 years, the greatest Elmore Leonard adaptation of all time. At that point, I thought we were about to see a -a once-in-a-generation talent become the standard-bearer for a new golden age of film to rival the 70s. As a young man wanting my era of film to be as vibrant and exhilarating as other great decades, this was hugely exciting. But instead, he did Kill Bill and spent eight years of his career and over $100 million recreating the kind of martial arts film that used to get made in three months for pennies and didn't drag on for four hours when two would have been more than enough. That film has some amazing scenes, some very good things in it, but it frequently grinds to a halt so Tarantino can do an anime tribute or throw in some Morricone music because he loves spaghetti westerns and so on. It also showed him often leaving out the most interesting parts of the story so that he could concentrate for what seemed like forever on what should have been background detail at best. I know the Kill Bill series has its fans and I may be in the minority here, but that film needed more discipline. It got worse with Death Proof, which from beginning to end was just an exercise in jerking off. He did return to form in the late 2000s with much better films, more like you'd expect from him. But he still has these little moments. Uh, Inglorious has too many sitting around and talking at a table scenes for my liking. Some of them are good, some of them are unnecessary. And there's far too much Eli Roth. The brilliant Django Unchained was tarnished slightly again by Tarantino insisting on having a cameo as an Australian, even though he couldn't do the accent to save his life. Hateful Eight is full of good things, but far too long. And why do you say you're going to do a Western, shoot it in 70mm with all its possibilities for epic visuals, then set the whole thing indoors? His most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was very good, and on re-watching it, I have to admit it never actually feels too long, despite running three hours and showing car journeys and extended recreations of TV shows that maybe could have been left out. The question is, sure, Tarantino can make his films his way and make them worth. He's very good at it. But what about if his next film needs to shift the balance away from his style and touches and towards a story and narrative that requires a different treatment? Would he do it? Could he do it? Now, the harsh truth is that just because you're a diehard fan of a filmmaker or some of their films, it's not up to you what films they make. As frustrating as it is to see a great talent only occasionally fulfilled, Tarantino is who he is. In the parallel world I like to imagine, where all my favourite films were as successful as they deserved, and the ones that got away in our world actually got made and were great in that world, I'd like to think that Tarantino would become the filmmaker he promised to be in Jackie Brown. But maybe it's in his nature to just noodle around in the Tarantino verse, making Tarantino films, and there'll be homages to old TV shows, and there'll be Characters that relate to old Modesty Blaze stories and other things that he loves. Now, I'd like to think that after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's come to the end of a chapter and might choose a new direction. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But if he insists on going down that road and just doing Tarantino films more than a superhero film, would it work if he decided to do this? They've tried this before, brought in other directors with a supposedly unique vision and a new take on the superhero genre. They tried it with Josh Trank on the Fantastic Four reboot after his work on Chronicle. And it was a car crash because of a clash between the director and the studio. Would we get everyone to agree on what film we were going to make if Tarantino was doing this with Marvel? And yet, there are some intriguing possibilities to this. Tarantino is a truly great talent. Jackie Brown put that talent to work because it was something he loved, Elmore Leonard, which needed to be done in a certain way and captured uh, and was true to the style attitude and spirit of the original his obsession with recreating that original worked and it kept him on the straight and narrow and his stylistic touches like the criminal setting the pop culture references and the 70s soundtrack all worked in the context of the film he was making elmore leonard's stories seem to inhabit their own universe and so did tarantino films so that lined up as well so maybe with silver surfer the mood tone look and style are things that all matter to him so much that his plans for tone and atmosphere would be pointing in the same direction as the source material. And most intriguingly, Tarantino not only could have gone for this in the mid-2000s in that parallel world of what-ifs I like to talk about, he could go for it now. The idea of an R-rated superhero existing basically in the MCU but just off to the side doing its own thing is established now. Marvel is about to enter another phase, and Silver Surfer film projects have been rumoured, but there's nothing concrete, nothing with a script and director and everything else already decided. It's not the wildest idea that Marvel could sign off on this. The hardest thing would be the effects and budget. Tarantino is unlikely to compromise and make a 12A or PG-13 rated, toned-down version of his ideas. Throughout his career, he has made films with bloody violence, language and a tone and setting which is absolutely not for younger viewers. Even the Star Trek project that he was seemingly working on was planned to be an R-rated film, and this was not something he would compromise on. This means that he's looking at the kind of budget you got for Deadpool, maybe Logan at the outside, to make a Silver Surfer film. That's 60 to $90 million, which I wouldn't mind having in my bank account, but it doesn't buy you the kind of CGI you need to pull off the effects, battles, space scenes and such like that you'd need for this story. You're looking at Doctor Strange money at the very least for that. The rules of the game in Hollywood tend to be that the more you want to do things your own way, the less money you get to do them, and he very much has his own way of doing things, so he would have a limited budget compared to his ambitions in the story on the page. Add to that, how would this stack up to the expectations of the audience? His films tend to be two and a half to three hours long and have an unhurried pace. His films frequently leave out the parts that other people would show you all the way through so he can concentrate on something else. This is the good effect in his best films, but is it going to work in a superhero film? How would he cope with the powerful comic book fan lobby who can make or break a film based on whether they feel it's true to canon? So here's how I think this could happen. Either within the rules of this feature, where I imagine it happening at a given moment in the past instead of what did happen in a kind of sliding doors moment, or now, tomorrow. Tarantino is sitting at home in lockdown, looking through his filing cabinet and sees his old silver Surface script. I think there's a way into this story that could be possible and actually quite an exciting idea. So I'm picturing this. Tarantino gets the silver surfer bug again and decides to make this his next film. He's talked about retiring after his 10th picture, so maybe this is his swan song. Marvel Studios haven't greenlit any other surfer film. The next phase is on hold while we ride out this pandemic. But someone could have a phone conversation right now about a different idea. Fantastic Four is off the table because it's not worked the last few times it's been tried. Tarantino calls them up. He says he has a vision for a standalone Silver Surfer movie that will be true to the original, but very much a Tarantino film. He argues that Deadpool worked with an R rating, and more to the point, Logan worked even when they took Wolverine away from the regular big blockbusters and did something totally different and R rated with it. He gets the green light, but with a limited budget. Not the $200 million he would need to do a CGI effects-laden blockbuster with all the bells and whistles. Tarantino says, fine. I'm not big into CGI and computers anyway. I'll do it my way. And here's how he does it. Rotoscoping. Which is partly why I discussed The Scanner Darkly early in this month's episode. It works as an idea because it enables Quentin Tarantino to work on a lower budget than for a normal Marvel film. And because it's an old-school film technique that he could get his teeth into. He films it live-action and animates over it instead of using CGI. It would emerge when he talks about the project that he prefers the 1978 rotoscope version of Lord of the Rings to the Peter Jackson trilogy anyway. It's happened with other filmmakers like Wes Anderson doing two feature films with old school stop-motion animation. I get the feeling that Tarantino almost needs to be recreating or reviving something from the past when he makes his films and this would be something he could do without detracting from the film he's trying to make. What it also enables him to do is what he's obviously passionate about from the films he's already made and the other adaptations he's talked about making. It's of paramount importance for him to do something true to the original. Luke Cage exactly like the original comics. He wanted Casino Royale in his version to be exactly like the original novel, down to the 1950s setting. The look and feel of rotoscoping is a way for him to do that. Visually and tonally, he could make a comic book film that is actually like the comic books. That's how he wins over the fans of the original. It's also how he does something that genuinely hasn't been achieved by any other screen adaptation of comic books and graphic novels. Sin City came close, and the animated series of DC and Marvel give you some of that. But they still change and flatten the original too much. Look back or rewatch film adaptations of comic books, especially live-action ones. Even the best are photorealistic CGI renderings of the original, which you enjoy, but it's not the same as you've got in the original comic. It's equivalent to comparing the recent CG remake of Lion King to the hand-drawn original. A lot of the more adult comic book adaptations look the same. They have the same overloaded colour palette, squelchy sound effects, and computer-generated blood spatter. They lose the original graphic feel from the comics they're based on. A good example is Watchmen, and the way that's written in the original book could have been storyboards for a script. But in the live-action film, everything looks like cosplay, or the versions of characters you can get your photo taken with at Universal Studios. Look at A Scanner Darkly, and that actually looks like a graphic novel come to life. I'm not suggesting that Tarantino make a film that looks exactly like A Scanner Darkly did, as that had a slightly cartoony look on purpose to reflect the style of the story. But interestingly, A Scanner Darkly was done for $8 million. Tarantino, in this analogy, has 10 times that. So the rotoscoping could be of bigger bolder, more challenging visual images. An update of darker animated films from the past like Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings, Heavy Metal, Fire and Ice. He's talked about animated projects before, such as an anime version of the Kill Bill story, and there was an animation sequence in one of the Kill Bill films. Maybe he'd do that again. You would still have the challenge, of course, for the fact that Tarantino is quite anti-technology. He doesn't have a mobile phone or email. He throws people off the set of his films if their phone goes off and it absolutely shoots on celluloid film, not digital. This would be a bit of an obstacle if we're trying to be totally realistic in our imagining here because the techniques of scanner darkly used for rotoscoping were all digital. So for the purpose of this hypothetical scenario, imagine there's some sort of technology way around that or is prepared to compromise. There's a way to shoot on film, convert it to digital to rotoscope and then convert back to film. Or maybe, fuck it, Tarantino goes 100% old school and has it rotoscope the old-fashioned way with hand-drawn animation from beginning to end and no computers. Either way, if he did do it, I genuinely believe this would work, and I think it would result in something that absolutely ticks Tarantino's boxes as well as satisfies the audience. He would have the freedom to do things his way, he delivers on the need for action and suspense the way he did with Django, the fight scenes in Kill Bill and Reservoir Dogs, he can take the story where he wants to because Silver Surfer has flashback scenes and things that he could work with that would work the Tarantino way. He can use bloody violence and his other styles because he's got this piece of work to get his teeth into so that he can stay true to the original spirit of Silver Surfer. And he can do that in a way that isn't full of the irritating distractions that sometimes mar even his best films. I think this would be a genuinely unique film, something different from the usual parade of great looking, well made but ultimately safe and sane, comic book films we were currently getting. Perhaps it's the one that got away, or perhaps, daring to, to imagine, this could be a real possibility for the future. The closing feature on the podcast, like last time, is the remake Hate Watch where I vent my frustrations at Hollywood's lack of originality and desecration of the past. While Hollywood has always remade films or recycled old plots, over time we've seen a growing and depressing phenomenon, where it's harder and harder for anything new to get made. To give you an idea of this, in 1985, two-thirds of the top 30 films at the US box office were new stories. Only three were remakes, and seven were sequels or installments in a franchise like the Bond films. In 2019, only six of the top 30 films were new stories, nothing in the top 10. Everything else was either a remake, reboot, or part of a franchise. I have less of a problem with the idea of sequels and franchises, which is maybe a bit hypocritical, but at least you can judge a sequel or franchise on the basis of whether another installment in the story is justified. But the proliferation of remakes and reboots, three or four times as many as they used to be, is a symptom of the lack of ideas and fear of anything new in film these days. In the interest of Balance, there are some excellent remakes like The Thing, Sorcerer, and True Grit, which showed there was a genuinely new way to retell that story. Some remakes are entirely justified because the original was crap and it needed doing properly, like Casino Royale and The Fly. But now we have too many people remaking films for no good reason and stinking up our screens. So this month, I'm taking a look at 2003's entirely unnecessary remake of The Italian Job. Now, the original Italian Job film is actually quite overrated. It coasts a little bit on having Michael Caine when he was at his peak, the great Quincy Jones music and a sort of British swinging 60s feel when that was very fashionable. But it didn't need to be remade. It was already the best possible version of that story. It's not like it was a fatally flawed but interesting idea that didn't get a full run-out last time. There's actually very little justification for remaking any heist film, because in that genre it's kind of accepted that you can make a so-called new heist film and borrow elements from older films in the genre as much as you want. This film doesn't actually do that much with the original except take some incidental plot details and the title. Other than that it seems to be made for no other reason except that a car company had recently revived the Mini Cooper. The original 1969 film showed Michael Caine's Charlie Croker in full crafty Cockney mode, getting out of prison and taking over responsibility for a gold bullion robbery his Italian friend was planning in Turin before he was murdered by the Mafia who don't want the robbery to take place. The rest of the film builds up to the heist which uses Mini Coopers in good old British red, white and blue and manipulation of Turin's traffic computers to pull it off. It's all great fun and made more so by the parade of British character actors plus Benny Hill and Quincy Jones' jaunty sing-along-in-the-pub theme song The Self-Preservation Society. It plays on a bit of larky lads patriotism, as if stealing gold from the Italians equates to beating them away from home at football, and on the frankly misplaced image that criminals like Ronnie Biggs were just naughty cockney boys having a bit of fun. By contrast, the remake starts with a gold bullion heist in Italy, but this time in Venice instead of Turin. Some of the criminals we're supposed to like, and they are double-crossed by the criminals we're supposed to dislike. The rest of the story follows the likeable criminals getting their own back on the nasty criminals with a new heist in Los Angeles. It has very little to do with the original film except that the new heist makes use of three Mini Coopers and there is manipulation of traffic computers uh, along the way. Now, Last month we looked at the remake of Total Recall and while that film is total shit there is some justification for a remake there. A new version could have gone back to the original hard sci-fi reality twisting Um, Ideas, the source material instead of the action blockbuster we got in the Arnie film. This time there was just no justification for making this new version of the Italian job at all. It certainly seems like no one was crying out for this film to be made apart from the executives and their accountants. They got a big budget and assembled a decent cast and crew to be in the film. Donald Sutherland, Charlie Theron, Jason Statham are all in the cast. The director of photography was Wally Pfister who later worked on a number of Christopher Nolan films. I would be amazed, however, if anyone was particularly excited to be making this film. It was a business decision for everyone involved. Director F. Gary Gray, who has done a good heist movie before, set it off back in 96, was just making a name for himself and seems only to have done this because it was a chance to do a big film for a big studio. Mark Wahlberg, who replaces Michael Caine in the lead role, was making a bid for leading man stardom at the time and did several films like this around the same time, aimed squarely at getting some mainstream success. It was one of three remakes he did in a two year period and he was miscast in all of them, especially this. Most tellingly, Edward Norton only agreed to be in the film because the studio threatened to sue him if he didn't. He had old contractual obligations to make one more film for Paramount. He kept turning down the films they offered him, presumably because they were all dog shit like this, and finally they said it's this or a court case. And the resulting film is exactly what you'd expect from a production designed by committee with no ideas or creativity by people who were there to just meet contractual obligations or use it as a stepping stone. It's an absolute paint-by-numbers job. Now, our lord and saviour, Mark Kermode, often says correctly that a very standard generic film made up entirely of elements and tropes that have been done before can be entertaining. As he puts it, the film inserts tab A into slot B. But as long as it's well put together and you like a standard film in that genre, it can be a good film. But someone involved obviously needs to be actually doing the job of putting tab A into slot B, doing it well and presenting you with a well-made piece of entertainment. Here the studio has just dropped to the box of unassembled, flat pack parts and told you it's a finished film. It's colourless, flavourless, completely anodyne and processed to contain nothing out of the ordinary or original that might frighten off the skittish multiplex audience. Anything that might be fun or entertaining has been carefully removed and that's what makes it so shit. The original film was probably lucky to get away with it and become a classic, But it's fun, it's brash, it's designed to be enjoyed tongue-in-cheek. The remake doesn't have any of that impudent swagger. It's not designed to be enjoyed, just consumed. In one end, out the other. I could tell you what happens in the film, but why bother? Just close your eyes and imagine what happens in heist films. Pick the most dull and unexceptional storyline you can think of, and you're probably there. While the original puts its own spin on the heist scenes and ends on a famous cliffhanger, the 2003 version just has a completely conventional end-to-end story with a nice conventional happy ending for the good criminals and nasty consequences for the bad criminals. As for the performances, Mark Wahlberg trots dutifully from scene to scene and doesn't trip over any scenery, but it certainly doesn't do anything to carry the film. He was probably told not to in case anything interesting or exciting accidentally breaks out on screen. It's a real come-down from Michael Caine, who makes the original work despite its weaknesses. Wahlberg's a good actor, but he's not the person you hire to take films that are bang average or actually terrible and carry them on his shoulders and make them watchable by sheer force of will. Michael Caine could make anything watchable. If you've ever seen a properly terrible Michael Caine film, especially from that era in the 70s and 80s where he admitted he did some tat, you've probably found yourself wondering at how he grabbed a film by the scruff of the neck and almost made it work. I don't think Mark Wahlberg even raises his voice in this film. I'm not sure he even does his Marky Mark frown, which is how he expresses emotion in weaker films that don't give him anything to get his teeth into. He just says his lines and goes home. Edward Norton and Donald Sutherland fulfil their contractual obligations in a professional manner, and that's all. No one can complain that they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. You just wonder why you hire interesting actors to do something that literally anyone from central casting could have done. There were a few new things that the makers of this remake added to, let's say, update the film for the 21st century. And it's supposed, it says here, to liven things up and make it all very now. But it's the same crap from executives just throwing stuff at the screen and hoping it would stick. Computer hackers, that's a thing, let's throw one of those in. Statham driving around being a bit mad and edgy is obviously a thing now in the Fast and Furious franchise, but this film's just an example of it done badly, because all they did was say, here Jason, be all cockney and violent like you were in Lockstock. Charlize Theron's character is one of those patronising look-the-ladies-can-do-stuff-too parts that we used to get a lot of when Hollywood belatedly began to notice that feminism existed. Here she proves that women are good at parking cars with a ludicrous manoeuvre that's supposed to look cool but is basically a rip-off of the Land Rover scene in Ace Ventura 2. As it happens, both Jason Statham and Charlize Theron are perfectly capable of being in action films that put them to good use in action films. It doesn't happen here, because again, no one's trying to do anything fun or exciting, so nothing fun or exciting breaks out. Now, despite this film being dull and terrible, it mostly got good reviews, and was a hit at the box office. The average IMDb rating is 7 out of 10, and it was Paramount's top grossing film of that year. Everyone seems to have quite liked it. Everyone is wrong. The original was daft but fun, like Adrian Cronauer on the radio in Good Morning Vietnam. The remake is like when Cronauer is taken off the air and replaced by Bruno Kirby's character and his government-approved fun and japes. Of all the remakes out there, it's not the worst film. It's not the most poorly made or judged. It's not the biggest insult to a better original. It's just so utterly soulless and joyless. If this is what you think a film is meant to be, why bother? Why don't you just manufacture and sell paper clips? Then you don't even need creative talent such as actors, writers, directors and their high fees. No one needs to pretend that what they're doing is fresh and exciting. You don't need a big marketing campaign or to worry about the reviews. The thing that really ground my gears about this film, the sheer nerve of it was this. In the film, the only characterization they offered that explained why the villain of the piece is the bad guy is that he doesn't have any ideas of his own, such as dreams of what he'll do with his proceeds from the heist. All he does is steal everyone else's ideas and does his own soulless imitation. My question to the makers of this film is if you think that's a bad thing, why the fuck are you doing it? In my imagined parallel universe where better films got the success they deserved and the films that never got made in our world had their chance, this film would have been abandoned at the idea stage and the substantial budget and resources made available to someone with a fresh idea or just donated to charity, anything but this. It's always nice to finish with a bit of angry catharsis there. Safe to say that the Italian Job 2003 remake is not something I'd recommend you seek out and watch. On the other hand, I'd thoroughly recommend you watch Scanner Darkly, Punch Drunk Love, and the Korean thriller New World. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thank you for listening. I wrote, presented, edited, and mixed the podcast using Audacity and Anchor FM. They're very intuitive and user-friendly tools, so anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to me. The music was Mistake The Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. A Scanner Darkly is widely available on DVD, although you have to search a little harder for the Blu-ray. The original novel, along with Philip K. Dick classics like Ubik, are widely available in bookshops. A Monkey's Tale can be purchased second-hand on DVD, but I strongly advise you not to do so. There's not a lot out there for you if you want to read further about Tarantino and Silver Surfer, but there are many good articles about his various unrealised projects. There's also a YouTube video where Tarantino explains the history of Luke Cage and Lawrence Fishburne in his own words. The full-length interview with the two James Adamson's will be made available soon as a bonus episode if you want to hear what we left out. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Hopefully you'll tune in next time. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media.